My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Owen Cyclops. He is um, an illustrator uh, and the author of uh, a new book called Channel One. Welcome, Owen. Hey, thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Um, I was planning on, on inviting you on for, for a long time uh, because I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. Um, I only know it through Twitter. I've, uh, that seems to be one of your main propagation mediums. Um, and um, I wonder, I've, I've seen you quoted or, or referred to as one of the um, emerging right-wing artists. Would you consider yourself <laughs> a right-wing artist? That's funny. Um, I wouldn't use that term. I think I know why people would say that. Um, it's kind of interesting because when I first started, it was a lot more political, my whole vibe and things I was talking about. I think there's probably a few reasons for that, where I was at in my life. And also I had sort of just gotten on board with realizing there were all these, you know, problems in society and the way things are going. And I really thought my focus would end up being mostly on the political sphere. But as I went further and further into it, it became more about spirituality and worldviews and things like that which is actually kind of where I started. I initially was sort of a weird mystical person. I got really obsessed with the political side and then I sort of merged those two things together. And that's basically where I'm at now. So I wouldn't describe it that way, but that's probably not totally off base. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's, um, I think we're at a moment where you can slowly start to afford to, to not necessarily be political, even if you are uh, represent a certain type of politics. Um, because up to this point, uh, just the the resistance that everyone was um, was creating towards whatever you want to call it, wokeness, uh, the left, uh, leftism, um, was uh, was kind of. I think people that that vibe, that energy, kind of fizzled out. I think people kind of they know wokeness is bad. There's just no more. There's no more energy in that field. And I feel like now there's uh, there's like a thousand flowers blooming in terms of things that are essentially right-wing, or you would have called them right-wing five years ago, but they're just um, their own thing. So there's there's art that is wholesome. I mean, wholesome is a, is a weird word, but, um, you know, I feel like your art is wholesome in a way that it's like, it's enriching. It's, um, it, it gives you like these small, like nested epiphanies. Um, it's, it's subtle, it's beautiful, but it's, it's also not overtly political. It's about something that is right-wing. It's kind of this this eternal fight against entropy. Um, but it's, it doesn't, you know, spell it out for you. This is, you know, anti-woke comic strip number five. It's not, it's not stone toss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you feel that way about my work. That's really cool. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't know the term like reactionary gets thrown around and I think independent of its literal direct political connotation, it's a really good just term almost like visually because most people are 
literally reacting to something. And I think that's part of what like clouds and muddies the water a little bit. Like if you have just like a totally normal Christian guy who like owns some guns and like is just a normal Christian guy, you could kind of imagine him pitching it as like, yeah, I'm like a right wing extremist. Like, or he could just be like, yeah, I'm like just a normal person actually. And once those waters started getting a little bit muddier for me, it almost got like more interesting in a way where I was like, am I this like crazy weirdo or am I just like a normal guy? Like thinking about that, I feel like is a big part of my work and what I do. And uh, I think that bleeds through in the artwork for sure. Yeah. And I, I feel like so, being someone on the right and I, I would describe myself as, as right wing politically, but just not having to man the barricades so much. Like I feel like that's kind of exhausted. Um, the idea that I have to position myself as right wing I feel like that's, you know, even last year I felt like that was something necessary, but now there's a whole huge sphere that's, that's been building where, you know, everyone can be their own person. And it's also a good thing. I feel like it, it doesn't really feed into the framing of the left because the, the, the left essentially kind of sets the, the, the chessboard up and we play a kind of a heel. You, we play a foil to the left and then we kind of, I don't know, accelerate the game that they're playing. Uh, and now I feel like because there's the movement on on this side's just been growing so much, and it's I like at least to me it feels I, I talk to all these people, and that's why to me it feels like you know there's a, a thousand flowers blooming right now. Um, you don't really have to play that. You don't really feel like you're the antagonist in this huge cosmic battle. Um, so I feel like that's that's actually softening the the main narrative as well. Like you know, we don't need you. We're not against you. We're for ourselves. Yeah, that's definitely true. There is a, an interesting like playing the heel. It's a really good way to say it aspect to it. I think for me also that uh, I don't want to call it a divide because it's really not a divide, but that sort of weaving road between like the political and spiritual aspects of it. I found myself more feeling like I was staying in my lane or playing to my strengths or operating in my own domain by letting my natural tendencies come out of being like a spiritually inclined person. Because, you know, kind of like the subtext of what you're getting at in a way for me on my side is that, you know, a lot of people do focus on like the day-to-day political stuff, the macro political stuff, the political history stuff, and they're good at it. And that's what they do. And they do it really well. But for me, I'm like, I don't need to pretend that that's like my domain, because it's really not. Um, sometimes when I see them talk about things, I'm like, yeah, I actually don't know about like that particular like constitutional amendment in the 1890s and how it affects like this issue today. Like, I have no idea. And it's good that you do, but I don't. And also, I think that it sort of clears things up a lot for me philosophically. You mentioned like engaging with other people. A really good example is like weed and drugs and things like that, you know, if I'm talking to someone, if I'm saying, yeah, you know, I probably think if you're like a young man that you shouldn't be smoking weed, especially all the time, but actually you shouldn't do it in my opinion. That's really easy for me to say and back up and feel really confident about. But then if you drifted over into the political realm of like, well, should like the police come to your house and like lock you up for smoking weed, it becomes this totally separate issue. That's almost like, it's almost not really related to like the real fundamental issue of it for me, which is like what you're doing yourself. Um, and I think that that's also part of why I kind of drifted towards my natural domain. Like I said, it sort of de-muddies the waters and it's like, yeah, like we could have a debate about, you know, if the cops should come to your house for X, Y, and Z reason, but what's kind of more important is like what you're doing and how you're living your life from where I'm sitting. Yeah. It, it feels to me like, um, you've kind of, um, gathered these layers throughout your life. And at least that's, you know, I've, I've read the intro to your book. 
And um, you seem like me be someone who's gone through phases. And I guess everyone does that. But if you're if you're kind of a public persona, you're trying to kind of you you have to be a bit more you have to think about these things. And I feel like you've you've obviously done that. And it's very interesting how you represent these phases. And I think it's in that um, comic X where you you illustrate very specifically what, what the phases were for you. Um, I mean, what what were the um, these steps that you took to get to the point where you're today? Yeah. Um, everyone really likes that one. I'm really glad because, uh, I was talking to someone about it last night even, and it really was born from a place of like, almost like psychological distress. I was like, wow, I really have to make this. So I'm really glad that other people resonated with it or got something out of it in some way. It's definitely a a crowd favorite, you could say. Um, the steps are pretty interesting. I mean, for me, it's my life, I guess. So hopefully I find it interesting, but, uh, Long story short, I got really turned on to religion as a thing in general. When I went to college, uh, I got really depressed and I ended up for some reason just thinking, you know, there's all these really old, it's very, it's very like Twitter sphere actually, but this was before that for me, way before that. I was like, you know, there's all these old books around. I'm not getting anything out of my college experience at all in any way. There must be some reason these old books have been kept around for so long. I'm just going to find the oldest books that I can and start reading them. Um, and I, I think I probably took out a computer and just Googled, like, what's the oldest book? And I found this book called the Tao Te Ching. That's like the central text of Taoism, you could say, or like the kickoff point for it, which in case people don't know, is like one of the Chinese philosophical manifestations. And I read it. And it really blew my mind because it's very uh, thinking about, you know, the empty space between things and uh, a really good way to imagine it is, you know, the author saying, you know, you have a cup, but the physical material of the cup is only there so you can use the space inside of it. You build a room, but you build the room to use the space inside of it. So we use things to use what's not there. And I was like, wow, this is crazy, man. And it really blew my mind. And the point of that story is that it really opened me up to the fact that I had been misled about what religion is and what religion is about. I guess I sort of just picked up my own cultural milieu of, you know, all those books, like it's probably just superstition and rules and stuff. But here I had this tiny book that was like blowing my mind. And for the next rest of my life, really, I only read religious texts. I really only vibed with religious art and things like that. And that was who I was for a long time. Uh, I settled into doing psychedelics, being really into Buddhism, Western occult. That's a whole sort of story in and of itself. And I fell out of that for a variety of reasons. And then eventually I became Christian. That's putting it in like an absurdly tight nutshell. But uh, you could say my home base was doing psychedelics and Buddhism, specifically like Tibetan Buddhism, but being on the outside of it, I wasn't like initiated into like a lineage or anything. And that was my cosmology for a long time before I left it. Uh, there's a few reasons. I was asking questions about, you know, basically who made the universe? Why do good and evil exist that weren't really getting answered from that system? And then on the other side, my main way of participating in the spiritual life, which was doing psychedelics, was not really getting me where I wanted to. Those two things and all the other factors that make up someone's life led me out of it. And then I became Christian after that. So it's one of those things where like if you come in at season four, it really doesn't make any sense. But if you watch all the seasons in order, you can see like the logical progression. Yeah. And, and it feels like a, a familiar story. Um, if, you know, you're, you're not the only one uh, in, in the sense, at, le- and at least in, in uh, our, our corner of the Twitter sphere, this sounds um, oddly familiar. I think parts of it are, are familiar to me as well. 
I did have a very massive cringe atheist phase, which you seem to have skipped somehow. You've managed that, which is pretty awesome. I have to. <laughs> I started there. That was, uh, I, I was raised in like the cringe atheist bunker ah, passively. Okay. Like my, like in my house, we never talked about God or anything like that. I mean, I don't think my parents probably literally ever mentioned it one time. So I just, I sort of started at that phase passively and then that's where the train left the station. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you had something to rebel against. Yeah. We had <laughs> we had like we were nominally um kind of instrumentally religious in my home and I thought that was very suspect. So I, you know, at like 12 I was like, yeah, I'm out, guys. This is <laughs> this is suspicious to me. Um and you you mentioned psychedelics and I feel like now there's um especially coming out of Silicon Valley and um, London tech or where I used to work. This is in the, the new era, you know, and the, the new age of Aquarius is upon us that uh, psychedelics are going to heal the anxieties, depressions, and the problems of, of, uh, of the new man. Um, is, is that the case? Do we have any hopes in that direction? I mean, you seem like you're a, you're a veteran of the, of the genre. Um, what's your, what's your feeling about psychedelics? Yeah. Um, well, just to give a little context there, you know, a veteran, that's, that's really interesting. Maybe I am. I, I don't know. Maybe I am. Maybe I should get a patch or something on my jacket. Yeah. yeah well, I, after, after talking about it so much, I've had to figure out how to like pin down my relationship to them. And the way I came to describe it that I think perfectly encapsulates it is that I basically went as far down that path as you could go without literally moving to like a commune or something and radically altering your life. So I basically did the most psychedelics you could do in a semi-responsible way without actually like uprooting your life and moving to like literally like a cult or something like that. Who I, I knew some people who were around that and I was like, that's pretty cool. How much is it a month? So I did that a lot. The question you asked me is, you know, is there a future there and things like that? Well, I think that in a way... The answer is really no, honestly, <laughs> but I think that in a way there's this term that I really like using, which is the obsessive epiphany. I think everyone is really familiar with, you know, you figure something out or you get turned on to something and you're like, wow, we got to tell everyone about this. And once we tell them all, they're going to get it and it's going to be great. And with conspiracy stuff that happens, you know, you're all of a sudden in the car with your friend telling them about this crazy thing that he doesn't really want to hear about. Or Timothy Leary is a perfect example, you know, to caricature him like, oh, if we just give everyone acid, they're going to get it. And I think that in a way society is going through that with this kind of like new psychedelic scientific -y melding thing. Maybe it's not everyone, but you can kind of pick it up in the air and the average kind of person is already turned on to it a little bit. This idea of like, oh yeah, psychedelics, like they expand your mind and they're kind of science-y, so they're going to fit in this new sort of paradigm that we're all kind of building together. Um I don't really think that it's a viable path to go down. I think that it kind of either leads to one of two places, to put it shortly. I feel like either they eventually become just another drug and it becomes like a sensory experience that you're kind of just doing because you enjoy it. Or on the other hand, you're using it as a system of like extrapolating meaningful information from the experience. And I think that... It's kind of a big question, but I think that that makes it almost impossible to operate within like a neutral paradigm. Like the Silicon Valley guys you're talking about and things like that, or, you know, even just the average person like doing acid or mushrooms or something within this context. I think they kind of imagine that they're like, well, 
I'm just sort of a smart person and I, I'm just doing this and I'm not really, it's not part of a religion or something like that. But to take meaning from those experiences involves fitting it into a larger worldview and cosmological context. And I kind of see it as like a folk religion developing in this culture in a way. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I don't really think it's going to be good, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I think that the other thing to touch on there would be that I think people really underestimate the extent to which it's breaking really, really, really hard and really, really, really fast in our situation right now. Like if you're not part of that world, it's kind of easy to imagine like, well, yeah, mushrooms and acid, like we had the hippies, like I get it. But for me, the really pressing thing is the ayahuasca and DMT aspect of it, because those are an order of magnitude more powerful than the other psychedelics. Like it's really not even comparable. And even 20 years ago, 25 years ago, less than that, actually, if you hear people talk about it, they were really, really, really difficult to get. And now it's like, you know, my sister texts me at a party and she's like, people are hitting like a DMT vape pen here. So I think it's going to be kind of like when the acid thing broke in the 60s, but a lot more and a lot faster. And I think it's kind of just starting. Yeah, it's it's interesting to contrast what um, what people are saying about it. You know, what, what you see on these like science channels, oh, you know, fighting uh, depression. Um, and all these ailments that are now supposed to be solved with these uh, with these miracle cures, and seeing it play out in real life, um, I've seen people who have gotten uh, slightly obsessed with psychedelics, um, and they're not in a good place, and they they haven't been in a good place for years, and it seems to be one of those things that uh, it's very hard to get out of, and you know. I don't think uh, at least uh, physical addiction from psychedelics, that's not really possible. They also have, um, they, they don't really, they don't really work after a uh, long, prolonged use. So there's, there, there's physical constraints on how bad you can go, but the, the mental state that these things create is not necessarily a positive one for many, many people. And um, I have many friends who I think even personally wish that they could go back and say, okay, yeah, this, this wasn't a door I wanted to open um, because it was, uh, it's, it's a dark path. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because yeah, the word path is really kind of like crucial there in a way, because I think that even when I was part of that world, you know, I'm not like a, a some kind of like pantheist or something, but I think that certain analogies, especially because they're native to using substances in a spiritual and let's say religious context are very useful. And certain like shaman or shamanistic cultures will describe like the plants as having a spirit and you're like interacting with that spirit and like maybe even taking on that spirit and things like that. And I could kind of take it either way if that's like literally true, like a literal spirit, but even just as like a metaphor, I think that you do sort of like take on the mindset inherent in a substance over time you know people drink they get a certain way people smoke weed they act a certain way most substances have like for lack of a better word a vibe and as you go further and further down the road of allying with them it becomes more part of your vibe and mindset that's just how it is and yeah i think it gets pretty interesting once you've gone you know 50 miles down that road and like you just said you're you're wondering if it was like a good call or not i think also, there's the other aspect that a lot of what I do now really revolves around worldviews and information and how information functions 
in terms of how people see things and whether it's all cohesive in their mind has always been something I've been crazy obsessed with. It actually was kind of a problem when I was a little kid because adults would say something and I would very rudely say like, oh, you know, but you just said X, but five minutes ago you said Y and those two things actually don't go together. And I actually had to have like other adults take me aside and be like, dude, you can't do that. Like, like, what are you doing? Um, that's just how my brain works, you know, for good or for bad. I'm probably obsessed with it to a slightly pathological extent. But my point is that I think when people start using those substances, because they're not ready to start looking under the hood and tinkering around with their worldview and cosmology, it gets pretty weird pretty fast, especially if you suddenly realize that you've been moving wires around. It's not, it's not a good meta metaphor because I don't mean like literally the neurology. What I mean is like, here's a really good example that I always use. I went to a peyote ceremony once and this woman was like, I looked in the fire and saw my brother talking to me in the fire. The thing is, what you think actually explains that and how that hooks into a larger cosmology of the dead and what happens when we die and do you have like a spirit that persists after death and all things like that, in order to take any meaning from that experience, you have to start working in that world because for that girl, what is she thinking now? That when we die, we like hang out waiting for people to take peyote so we could like talk to them? Or was it, you know, a Jungian, like collective unconscious, like it wasn't really my brother. And that's kind of weird because then what, it was like a mirage in my brain kind of, but not really. That's a weird place to go. So I think that people accidentally put these like axiomatic posits into their worldview. And it gets pretty crazy pretty fast, especially if you're in that world, because it's really easy to make fun of, you know, sort of like new agey, I guess, people and say, oh, you know, um, everything in your life, it comes to you because of your thoughts. And if you think positive things, positive things come to you. If you think negative things, negative things come to you. That's just how it works. But when you get people who really start to rewire their life based on that, it could get pretty dicey. Um, and sometimes it's a really hard fall off that horse of, oh man, the universe is like a place of like love and light only. And then like, boom, you get hit with something hard. You know, it could be a long fall off that. And I've seen that happen a lot. That's like part of why I talk about it. I don't really like to get in other people's business necessarily, but when I see like bad spiritual beliefs hurting people and becoming more prominent, that's when I do feel a slight obligation to poke in and allow people to kind of like check their situation. Uh, the path that I've seen people take, um, kind of the, the more pathological path that I've seen people take is they take psychedelics in a party context at a very high point of their life. You know, they go to festivals. It's, you know, they're, I don't know, 23 years old. It's the first festival they went to. Someone gives them acid. They have incidental spiritual experiences. And then they decide that this is, um, this is something they want to pursue. And then they chase the spiritual experience. And they're like, okay, psychedelics gives you, gives you this high, the spiritual experience. And then that's, that has negative consequences down the road because um, they're kind of thirsting for revelation um, and they're also kind of greedy to contextualize it with whatever tools they have. And as the kind of person who's 23 and goes to festivals, you typically don't have many, many tools. You're not really studying great faith traditions to, you know, interpret all this stuff. And that's kind of the direction I've seen people go, go down um, that's a particular personality type. Not everyone who takes LSD at a festival is going to end up like that. But people who take LSD at a festival and have like minor religious experiences that really affect them deeply, 
can end up in, in, in weird situations, like even 10 years, you know, 15 years down the line, they're still, they're still there. They're at that festival. That's the highlight of their life. And they're still like, you know, groping for it. Dude. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Yeah. There's, there really is sometimes like a, like a chasing the dragon element to it to use terms from other like drug <laughs> abuse, I guess you could say. Um, for me, there's also like a squeezing blood from a stone kind of thing. There's a few metaphors that really work there. I think also it got really interesting for me because along the way I had really allied with other substances also. I like that term. Like I really became like a close, I thought I was a friend, let's say with like weed and alcohol along my journey. And it was interesting because when I stopped using those, there's this, it's similar in a way that I think that someone might only pick up on if they were kind of like, sadly like addicted to those things because if you go to a party and you're used to like smoking and drinking and other people are smoking and drinking let's say there's this element that the substance puts into the situation where it's like no matter what you're locked out you're locked out there's someone smoking weed you're not smoking weed you're locked out period there's nothing you can do and i think there's something about which is part of why it's hard to like quit those things because it's true. You're, you're, no matter what you do, you're not going to be high on weed no matter what. You're just not. So it's not going to happen. Like, get over it, uh, which is difficult. But with the psychedelics, I think it's interesting because that gets woven into like the spiritual. So there's almost this other element of like, people probably wouldn't articulate it this way, but it's like, well, you know, I could go to Mount Athos. I could go to the Zen monastery. I could go to the mountains. If I go to the mountains, though, like, wouldn't it be better if I had acid? Like, I'm not going to have that magic thing no matter what. And I think that that also really messes with people's heads, me especially too, because yeah, there's that element of like, well, I can go to the cabin in the woods and do this, all the spiritual stuff, but no matter what, it's not going to be like that time I took acid because I'm not on acid and you're locked out. And I think that imparting that into the spiritual realm also gets like really dicey. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very um, tricky, it's, it's a minefield, I think for, for a lot of people. And it's uh you know, one of those things that people should uh, be very, um, respectful towards. It's not, it's not something that you should do on a whim. Um, but you also mentioned in, in your introduction, um, that you have been someone who's been delving not only into, you know, this, this aspect of, of existence, but also you've been reading, um, forbidden literature for, for mm -hmm. the longest time. I feel like these are, these are comparable experiences in a way it's, you know, you have forbidden experiences, which are much more direct, then you have forbidden knowledge, which is kind of more of a convoluted thing to do, but it's a, it's something you seem to be attracted to as well. So, um, are these are these experiences comparable? Um, what what did uh, the forbidden literature uh, bring to you? <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, there there has to be some relationship there. I mean, it couldn't be a coincidence. I think there's something about uh, I talk about it in the intro also a little bit. Um, in case people don't know, I didn't mention it, but the, the book is like a collection of comics and there's just little bits of writing punctuating each chapter. Um, so that's what we're talking about right now. And I think that there's something about being drawn to, I don't even want to say like the fringe and the weird. It's almost like being drawn to like the discarded or being drawn to the things that other people are saying you know, over there, like, that's just a little bit of like a garbage dump or over there, like, dude, don't even look in that closet. Like we all checked. There's like nothing in there. Like, don't even bother. I think it's kind of that thing that really 
draws me in more than anything else. This feeling of like finding something that other people haven't noticed or seen, which can be good or it can also be pathological. It could also be bad. It's definitely been both in my own life. But yeah, it definitely bled over or whatever bubbled up in the same way in terms of information. Because yeah, at a certain point, it was still while I was doing psychedelics, but I also got really obsessed with exactly that. If there's anything that someone said, you know, that's stupid, that's crazy, um, banned books or things like that, but especially anything where someone's like, yeah, that's crazy, those people are crazy. I've probably looked into it probably to a really (laughs) absurd degree, or it's on my radar to get too soon. I think that ultimately, honestly, aside from like actually like informational things that I took away, you know, you read about this war and like, oh my God, these were the good guys, these were the bad guys, or you read about like this event or this figure and oh my God, this guy knew this guy and things like that, that are like tangible bits of information. I think it really, again, just drew me to this anchor of like worldviews and how worldviews function and things like that. Because once you start to jostle your own worldview a little bit, you start to see like, oh, people need, you know, let's say like a bad guy or this thing happened and people need to explain it in X, Y, and Z way. And I got really obsessed with things that didn't fit into the worldview. You know, it's a very conspiracy thing, but showing people like, look at this video, like it's real, but you know, they can't really admit that it's real because it would upset their whole worldview and things like that. So it really just made me think about how information and things function in terms of how people see the world more and more and more. And um, there's a, there's a poem by this, uh, poet I like named Rilke. He's probably my favorite poet ever, actually. And he says, it's something like, you know, I'm a bird and I'm circling and I'm circling this tower and my circles get tighter and tighter and tighter around the tower and I get closer and closer. But like, I don't know what's inside, but I'm getting closer. The circles just get tighter and tighter. And that's kind of how I feel about all that stuff. It's almost like everything that I've looked into has gotten me tighter and closer and closer to this thing that is how people see things and how they interpret information and how worldview affects, sounds redundant, but how we see the world. So, so people are irrational, are you saying? Or not? <laughs> um, well, it's weird. It puts you in a weird place being someone obsessed with all this stuff because you start to feel like, well, I feel like I could poke into most people's worldviews and find something that doesn't fit in there. But then, of course, if you're a spiritual person, you can't be so arrogant to say, and I'm the exception. I'm like the number one rational actor and I see things as they really are. So I'm sure someone could do it to me also. But yeah, I think for most people, well, let me, let me, okay, let me, let me reorient the, the, where we're going with this because it's not really for most people. It's more like the zeitgeist and the general social programming that people happen to pick up just by virtue of kind of walking around and being in the culture and society. That's kind of like what I'm more interested in. Like, yeah, you could find a soccer mom and she thinks X, Y, and Z about whatever, but it's like the it's like the kind of programming, I hate to describe it that way, that people sort of pick up and manifesting the gaps in there and crawling into them and things like that. Like you can talk to someone, let's say a normal person, and they'll say, well, you know, um, I'm just going to pick a random example. Let's say, oh, the winners write history. You know, you can't, you know, someone wins a war, they just say they were the good guys. And you're like, yeah, totally. And you're like, can you give me a specific example? And for most people, they're not comfortable. They, they've never put two and two together to be like, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right, actually, you know, or things like that, where finding these gaps and things that don't really stack up, um, like the government lying about stuff is a good one. You know, everyone will admit the government lies about stuff. But for the average person who feels very antithetical to conspiratory style thinking, they'll say, well, yeah, the government lies about stuff all the time. And then if you're like, OK, like what what in particular do you think? Sometimes they're like, uh, 
I don't know. And you can see them kind of get uncomfortable because pinning it down gets very dicey. So the point is that, yeah, there's something about how it manifests on the individual level from like, let's say the social program and things like that, that I got really obsessed with. And that's been one of my main focuses in a way. It also fits in with the spiritual and things like that. Uh, because everyone has like a spiritual view also. And sometimes that's a little fuzzy or poorly defined and how that manifests. Uh, I'm probably obsessed with it to a degree that you could definitely, you could probably get like diagnosed with something. <laughs> um, there are multiple zeitgeists, zeitgeister, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in, in, in our, um, at least in, in our sphere, at least. Uh, I mean, I think the internet is, is a generator of, of, of zeitgeister. Um, it's, at least for me, and and I think you kind of illustrate that very well in, in Comic X. It's kind of the story of you drifting away from the main zeitgeist, main narrative, and uh, flowing into your own self-created or just in kind of arcane or, or, or exotic zeitgeist. And how, in a way, you're you're at a at a therapist on a therapist couch describing this as a as a pathology uh, and kind of feeling the alienation from from the fact that you've ripped yourself from the main zeitgeist through your curiosity. Um and I feel I feel the same as well. And I think like that's why this cartoon hits a hits a nerve. Um uh, because it's um yeah it's 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 a very uh yeah common experience at least in especially in right wing circles. This is not being right wing is not part of zeitgeist. Maybe it will <laughs> be soon hopefully there's kind of a splitting off zeitgeist, but it's not it's not common. So um, are, are there multiple ways of being in, in, in that, in that way? Or, or how, how do you feel towards that? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, there's definitely like, you know, we could call it like whatever the main zeitgeist and then maybe it fractals, fractals down into different sort of sub egregores, little like sub spirits and things like that. But I definitely think that, I think part of why I started talking about it is a, is a little bit of what you just touched on where I really think there is like a kind of like pain at being out of step with whatever's going on around you and the people around you that I don't want to say I never see people talk about it, but maybe it's partially because there's an element of reacting against this stuff and realizing what's going on for men. I don't know what it's like for women, honestly, at all, but for men, there is this element of like, well, yeah, like you guys are saying this, but like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to view my masculinity as like pathological. I'm going to be a man. And like, that's what this means, like X, Y, and Z. And that's great. That's actually really good. And I benefited a lot from it. But I think there is like an untouched element of like the pain and like how painful it is being out of step because of these things that you know, and you can demonstrate are true, but it doesn't matter. People are just looking at you like you're completely insane. And I think that's also something I really wanted to articulate with my work in some way, just because at the time, at least I was feeling that a thousand percent every day and I knew other people were, but I wasn't really seeing it manifested in a way that we could all like talk about it. Honestly, um, like for me, you know, I'm, I'm basically the polar opposite of how I grew up in terms of most issues and each one of those dominoes falling was really painful. Um, I mean, take something like uh, abortion. You know, I grew up thinking like, this is totally normal. It's just like getting a tooth pulled at the dentist or whatever. And when I personally came to the conclusion that that wasn't the case, I mean, that was crazy for me. It was really a crazy experience. And the people around me couldn't talk to them about it. They didn't want to know. If I tried to, they were like, you're now one of those people. Like, here's the wall. And that happens, you know, just hundreds of times. After you close that door and you're like, okay, I finally got my head back on straight. It's like, boom, you hit another wall. There's another one just as big. And, uh, 
I think that speaking to that aspect of it is a big part of what motivated my work still now for sure. Um, but definitely initially for sure, because you're taking all this like psychic damage and, uh, it makes you feel really alone. I think that's part of why people are gravitated towards the general sphere online actually. Absolutely. And I feel that at least in my case, there's a, there's a big tension between my aspiration to be trad <laughs> or mm-hmm. to, to live a more um, kind of tradition. I don't even know how to describe it. Something that's a bit more informed uh, in reality, um, you know, informed in, in just the way humanity is supposed to be, at least in my, in my perspective. Um, and the fact that we just don't live in that kind of world. So um, I'm, I feel like in a way, thrust into a, a role of LARPer because people <laughs> around me are just, they're, they're not trapped. <laughs> they don't <laughs> understand what I'm talking about. Even like I, I live in Romania, you know, where people think, oh, you know, that's a pretty backward place. <laughs> and it, it isn't, <laughs> it really isn't. Like most people are, you know, very, very chill with abortion, very, very chill with, they, they, they're hungering. They're hungering for anything that comes down the pipe from, from the U.S. You know, yeah. they're, like there's, there used to be like, oh, you know, a 20 year delay, 10 year delay, five year delay. Now there's like a week, maybe not even because Instagram is instant. So any memetic virus that comes from the West is, is here. So like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the consummate LARPer because I'm like, okay, you know, always, always on the, on the outside of, of society. And it's weird because I'm LARPing and I'm kind of forced to be not forced, but I, I choose to be online where other people kind of share my worldview. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird situation to me, you know, traditionalist online. And yeah, I see why people criticize this position, but it's not really, I don't know where to go, what to do, where to, <laughs> do you see what I mean? No, I, I totally do. And it's a really funny situation to be in because it kind of like ropes back to where we started, where you know, it's, it's almost like you're just normal, but being normal is now defined as this like extra big position. And you're trying to explicate like, well, what does it really mean to be trad? And people are coming along like, well, did you know, actually in the 1920s, it actually wasn't like how you think it is. You're imagining this, you know, but then at the end of the day, you're like, dude, like, I don't, for my wife is a good example. Like she just wants to be a mom and just is like a stay at home mom, but almost that like makes her like reactionary somehow. Like what? Um, and it's this weird thing. It's kind of like where you started, like, you know, how do you define yourself? Because it's almost like you realize that you're actually not the, let's say like electrically charged one. You're just responding to this society that's pushing so hard in all these different other directions. So yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird place to be in for sure. I mean, I enjoy it, but, uh, it's a weird place for sure. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. I, I, I love it and it's fun for me. Um, but I also, I, I feel it, you know, because it's also a little bit addictive and I do spend too much time on Twitter. I have to say it's a, it's a great place, but, um, it's, it's too great. You know, it's like that, that Louis CK bit about drugs. You know, they're, they're so good. They're going to kill you. Um, I'm going to quote you from your introduction, which is a very good uh, piece of, of work. I've, I've read, read, um, spectated most of the comics in, in the book. Um, so I'll, I'll read this from introduction because that's, that's where the bulk of, of uh, explanation about you is. So um, this body of work stretches through a very transformative period of my life. At the start, I was living intoxicated in a tiny apartment in a dirty part of the city. Now I pass uh, a field of, uh, full of cows every morning when I walk my dog and my wife is pregnant. Not anymore, I think. Uh, there are tiny baby clothes in my house. Um, and this was, this struck me very, very much because, yeah, 
exactly. This is this is my my arc as well. This is the hero's journey right here. Uh, indeed, I was intoxicated in a tiny apartment, <laughs> and yeah, kind of pretty much a dirty part of London. Uh, and now, no cows, but um, baby, uh, lots of cats I have, and tons of tiny baby clothes in my house, and it's really it's really awesome. So, how fast did you make this transformation? What was the um, the catalyst to 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 get you from A to B? Yeah. Um, yeah. Hopefully a lot of people have that situation, right? That would be the positive outcome of living in one of those apartments. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, life sometimes has like a naturally sort of narrative and spectacular quality to it. And uh, it really all hit all at once. Um, one spiritual metaphor that I took away from going really hard into Zen Buddhism, which is not my main domain, just to be clear, but I, I went into it a little bit, is, uh, you know, every theology has its own internal debates about little weird things. And in Zen Buddhism, they have a debate about whether or not enlightenment is sudden, like, boom, it just happens in one moment. You're not enlightened than you are, or if it's gradual, if it's something that builds slowly over time. And I was talking with my friend one time about it and he said, you know, this is stupid because anything that's sudden, it kind of does happen gradually. There's always a buildup, whether or not you notice before the snap and anything that's gradual, eventually it tips over and happens suddenly. So it kind of is like a false dichotomy. And in a way, looking back at the question that you're asking me, I, I kind of feel that way. It's like on the one hand, it's almost like you could pinpoint a day where it was like, boom, everything's different. But if you zoom back, there is like a slow buildup. Um, Long story short, I had really fallen out with Buddhism, not actually because of any anything inherently wrong with it, but um, my main questions about you know where the universe came from and why good and evil exist, it's sort of an interesting note. In Buddhism, because the main goal is escaping the cycle of death and rebirth, uh, Buddha actually put, supposedly, where the universe came from on this list of things that you're not really supposed to think about because it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter for you trying to escape the cycle of death and rebirth. So who cares? So that was the kind of vibe I was getting from it. Like I had these two big questions in my mind and it just wasn't really getting answered from this system. I had made my home and place of spiritual residence. So I just kind of drifted away from it. Um, on this, on the dovetailing with the, you could call it political front. I had kind of realized that I got really obsessed with Tibetan Buddhism but that I'm not Tibetan, I'm a Western person. And that was the gateway to Western occult and things like that for me. I was thinking, well, you know, in a way, not in a bad way, but Tibetan Buddhism, it's kind of like Tibetan occult. It's all this philosophy and practical things that you do. And I have this in my own backyard, which is like Western occult. So I'm just going to pour it over and start doing that. I tried to like live in that world. Um, I think I had a kind of intrinsic spiritual, uh, I don't want to say revulsion, but like polarization from it. I didn't really... <laughs> It, it sounds very LARPy, but this is what it's like if you're in Western occult world. It just felt weird doing these like magical ritual things. And like, I got all the books and stuff, but I was like, man, I don't know. Like, that was just my vibe on it. I was like, I really just feel like there's some reason I'm not doing this, but I don't know why. And my friends would ask me like, oh, did you do this thing? And I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, dude, it's been months. Like, you know, why aren't you doing it? And I was like, I don't know, honestly, I really have no idea. In retrospect, I think it was just sensing there's something like nefarious and weird about it, which is probably obvious for us now, but at the time it wasn't for me. So I was really just floating and my spiritual life just became like dead because I wasn't getting it from Buddhism. I wasn't getting it from Western occult. I was kind of just floating, being this guy who just, it just kind of died. And that was like a huge part of who I was. And long story short, the, what really kicked it off is that I hit a wall. I just was like, I was drinking a lot 
and smoking weed all the time, like to an absolutely insane extent. And I kind of just hit this wall. We could go into it. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, mm-hmm. It's very dramatic, I guess. Uh, well, I won't tease you. I'll just tell you. So basically, I was drinking so much that I uh, just woke up this one day and uh, I checked my eyes in the mirror and my eyes were actually yellow in the mirror. Sounds really crazy. It actually turns out that long story short, it's because I have this other like underlying medical condition. But I had thought, I thought in that moment that I had like accidentally like killed myself from drinking, which I didn't thankfully, but that's what I actually really thought. And I was like, wow, like I really have been driving my car in a certain way down this road and it's just not working. Like something, that was like the moment where I was like, something is like wired wrong or I made a wrong conclusion somewhere. Like I have to backtrack or something. And even though I thankfully didn't, didn't die from that and actually like showed me this other medical thing I had, which was really good to find out about. So it was kind of like a blessing in disguise. That was really the catalyst for me to be like, okay, this, this path that I'm going down isn't working and I have to change something. And like you were saying, you know, your friends, maybe your, I don't know if they're your friends or people, you know, they're wondering like, oh, can I go back down this road? Like how far back can I go back? And that's really what I did. I kind of like backtracked my steps and I was like, dude, I went wrong somewhere, but I really can't figure out what it is. And that's eventually what led me to Christianity, uh, realizing that God is real, taking that more seriously. And that really spilled out into the rest of my life. Because for me, this sort of naturally segues into the next part, but I really feel like being in a relationship, starting a family, kids, even, even just being husband and wife with someone, there is this like intrinsically spiritual dimension to it because it is really, really difficult. And it was kind of like, everything just happened all at once. That's sort of why I told the story in that way. It was like, boom, like now the drugs are gone. Now these doors for these weird spiritual paths are closed. Now I'm looking at this differently. Now I'm looking at this differently. Now I'm, and it was like, almost like one day, really. It was like, boom, here's the turnaround point in the movie. And from there, it was like a left turn off the highway. And I probably left the city maybe like, not that long after that, man. Maybe like four to six months after I just put everything I owned in a van, including my wife. That's just a joke. And drove what, like several, not going to say exactly how far, but let's call it a thousand miles out and restarted my life. Yeah. That's, that's also a surprisingly, a, a, a pretty familiar story. I, I wonder for, um, in, in terms of Christianity, um, did you have an epiphany, like a revelation, a moment where, where this kind of came to you or did you just reason yourself into God's existence? Well, the way I normally describe it, you know, I guess usually everyone's conversion story or whatever could fill like a whole book probably, but the way that I normally, and it often does like confessions, for example, I think the way that I normally describe it is that oddly, again, filtering back to what we talked about before, it kind of feels like the way that you get turned on to like a conspiracy theory, as odd as that parallel is, Because it's never, oh, here's the bloody glove. And that means that this guy was the murderer in the chess room. We proved it. Great. It's more like you start to stack up these bits of evidence. And eventually I just felt like I'm an idiot if I keep, you know, I have this massive pile of evidence. And now it's like a conspiracy theory for me to dismiss it. It feels stupid to be like, well, all these arrows are pointing in this one direction, but I'm not going to look over there. You know, that just felt like what I was doing at a certain point. So it was a few things. Um, When you're in like the Western occult world, because it's so 
individually oriented. Um, this guy, Mercia Eliade, probably saying his name wrong. Actually, I think he's Romanian. Just interesting. Yeah, tangent. he is. Mircea Eliade. Nice. Yeah. Um, he nailed in one of his books exactly the draw to the occult, in my opinion, because he said self-initiation is the perennial fascination with the occult, the fact that you kind of like initiate yourself. And it's just relevant because I feel like a lot of it is kind of like, especially if you're the kind of person I am, like sitting in the lab of your mind and kind of tinkering with ideas and trying to figure out things for yourself. And I actually had reasoned myself really close to Christianity in a way. I had this moment where I was sitting on my bed and I was like, well, you know, I know God is real. I'm 100% sure of that because for me, creation proves God. Um, I know that it's not like some kind of abstract, like, cloud of nebulous qualities God because morality for me proves that God has some interest in like human affairs. So I'm like, creation is real. I can see that. Morality is real. I can see that. So I can deduce like certain things about God from that. Um, You know, he cares about humans in a way. And I kind of got to this point where I was like, well, you know, God is such a big thing to, to, to dumb it down that he must have some kind of like, I don't know what word to use, like emissary or emanation or something that would be like an interface for humans that like humans could understand. And I sort of kept working on that. And I was like, this is kind of like what Christianity is in a way, you know, there's like the father God. And then he has this son that's like the, to dumb it down again, I know I'm not being like theologically sound, but like the interface kind of the, the person who is like, Oh, we can like understand he's like a human. I get it. But then there's like the big, you know, more complex God beyond that, let's say. And I was like, wow, this is really weird. I really reasoned myself really close to Christianity and I really didn't know what to think about it. And that just stacked on top of um, a lot of other things like seeing in history that I was really drawn towards all the societies that were Christian or that were built in like a Christian way. And I was like, is that a coincidence? Maybe, but probably not. And Christian values and things the Bible was telling me. In a way, there's like a third sort of aspect to it where I almost felt like Christianity for my whole life was like this crazy guy that lived in my neighborhood. And sometimes he would tell me something and I'd be like, that guy's so crazy. And then later I'd be out and I'd see something and I'd be like, oh, wow, it's exactly, that's so weird. That's what that crazy guy said would happen if someone did that. Wow. And then I'd go back and he'd tell me something else. And then eventually I was like, okay, that guy is obviously onto something. So it was sort of all those things stacking up and the arrows got more and more bold and highlighted. So that's really, that's really what it was for sure. Um, for me, it's not really like the way people often talk about religion and spirituality. I really don't feel like I have like a blind faith element for me looking at creation and everything. I'm like a hundred percent sure God is real. And then I kind of reason backwards from there. So I just mentioned that because I think that puts me in a little bit of a different boat when people ask about religious and spiritual progress. Cause I think most people are imagining It's like you get to the edge of the dock and then you make some kind of leap of faith. Like, well, I guess it must be real. And you make a leap of faith or something, which is fine. But for me, it's like I'm working backwards. It's like I'm 100% sure God is real. And then I'm kind of trying to trace the threads back from there, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's that's a good place to be. <laughs> that's a, that's kind of a solid a solid foundation. I think my my belief is more kind of Girardian, like kind of, uh, you know, I'm I'm I'm. I, I don't think it could be any other way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. Kind of by reductio ad absurdum, but that's a more shaky way of looking at things. You know, it's not; it doesn't really fuel itself. It's like 
you know, it it would be pretty terrible if it was any other way. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting. Yeah, it's, it's. I always, I'm curious with other people because you know maybe, maybe I could, you know, I could, I could source some more epiphanies, some, some other places. I feel like I need it. Um, one, one question that always comes up, and a lot of people ask me this because I am trad. <laughs> Apparently, I've, I've slid into into the trad space. Um, finding a wife, you seem to have found a wife like that very, very fast, very effectively. How did you go about finding a wife and, and whisking her, or like uh, taking her away to to your um, country, uh, like pastoral existence right now? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, I almost feel like bad in a way when people ask me for advice on that, because I sort of accidentally ran a cheat code on that front, which would only be useful for someone very young. But I accidentally found myself working in the sphere and domain where it is almost without exaggeration entirely women and gay men which is the arts in general um so really honestly totally without exaggeration my entire i guess you could say career including school and everything like that it's always been like 90 percent women 10% gay men and me. <laughs> That's really what it actually feels like. So people ask me and I always just feel like I have to contextualize it because I, I want to be like, you know, go out in the woods and go hunting. But I, I have to say like, I live in the place with the most ducks though, you know, so it's kind of like different for me. Um, so that must've been a factor. I have to, you know, not give myself too much credit. Um, but aside from that, I think that there's a few factors there that I just got really lucky on in a way I started, well, I, I had been dating another girl and it's just relevant because, sorry to my wife who's going to listen to this, so it, it didn't mean anything really, but <laughs> it's just relevant because she was like a hardcore science, atheist, pop culture, media person. And I was like, oh, you know, we're opposites. That's so cool. Opposites go together in a way like this will work out perfectly. And like, it really didn't. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to find someone who's on a similar page to me in a way. And what ultimately sparked me asking my wife on a date is that my friend told me that she had this, she, she went to this party where people were doing like crystal ball stuff and things like that, which seems very antithetical to my worldview now. But I was like, okay, boom, I'm asking that girl on a date. Cause I was just like, I'm closing the materialism door. If this girl's into like weird spiritual stuff, let's go. Like that's perfect. And I kind of caught her right at the moment that I started to sort of figure everything out, which means that we kind of went on that journey together, which was really convenient. I think that trad people in general are sort of caught in like a catch 22 in a way, to be completely honest with you, because I, I have certain ideas, I guess, about how male and female spirituality manifests and is different. And with the caveat that obviously I am Christian and under that umbrella for sure, I do think that it, it manifests a little bit differently. I think men tend more towards like arguments and like theology and like, oh, but what does this canon number 102 say about this? Or like, you know, four hour long arguments about like absolute divine simplicity or something. Not that women don't do that. Usually, honestly, they don't, which is probably good. <laughs> but I think that there's something about the way female spirituality manifests where it kind of makes sense that part of the stereotype is like, you know, tarot cards and crystals and things like that. And this more like intuitive feeling based 
thing. I'm actually not saying that in a negative way at all. I actually kind of mean it in a positive way. My point is that I feel like with everything that's going on in terms of like femininity and messages about femininity and things like that, there's this sort of odd sync up that's not very intuitive where a lot of those girls who are into the weird um, things like that, like what I just described, it's almost like that actually puts them in touch with their femininity in a way and has unbeknownst to them kind of insulated them against a lot of these messages. Because if you're that kind of person, let's say you take someone that's even on the tail end of that, like let's say they're into like witchy stuff or, you know, things like that. In a way that can insulate a woman against these messages of like, you know, basically you and men are like the same or, you know, there's nothing really, you know, things like that. And I think that that was a big factor in us syncing up and taking it all the way there because I think even at that time, she really was like, it sounds stupid because it's obvious, but like she really was like embodying like the female aspect of that in a certain way. I was embodying the male aspect of that in a certain way. And I really felt like we synced up in like a yin yang and that that's part of what's allowed us to go like all the way there. I just mentioned it because I feel like it's sort of a catch 22. You can't advise like a trad guy, like go find a girl who's playing with tarot cards and like convince her it's bad and then take her to your pastoral Christian abode on some hill, you know? So it's kind of a long answer, but those are like some touchstones in there. As for how we literally met, which is less interesting, we met at work. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I just, I guess I'm kind of wandering around, but I kind of just mentioned that about her background because I think that that's sort of what made us come out here and go all the way. Like for her, it wasn't like a big shift in worldview to say, okay, now we're leaving the city and we're going to go live in the rural place and we're going to raise a kid. And by the way, when we have the kid, like, I don't want him like eating plastic. You know, she was like, yeah, I know. Obviously that's what's going to happen. Sort of a long windy answer, but that's basically how it, how it went down. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because that's kind of what I, I noticed as well um, in terms of, of, of people that I know and kind of the, the mommy sphere that I've been uh, kind of thrust into now that I'm a mommy as well. Um, uh, a lot of, a lot of kind of the, the appreciation for motherhood um, and kind of the, the residual appreciation for motherhood you can find still in, in places that are tied in some way to the occult because you don't really have that religious um, mainstream, uh, but you do have people interested, like you said, in, in tarot and in, in like the Zodiac, obviously very big astrology, things like that. Uh, Chinese traditions that, you know, it's it's all very... To me, I'm also kind of a, a kind of a rigorous, very systematizing type person. So to me, that wasn't was never really that that interesting. Like if you can't really, you know, put it in a spreadsheet, I'm not, I'm not yeah. sure it's it's relevant. But um, I I could see that you know that's kind of a, a repository of a lot of femininity and a lot of, um, of you know appreciation for for other archetypes than the maiden because that's essentially what you have in in main um, in mainstream culture now. You know you have to be a maiden until the day you die, but you also maybe no won't die because you might be frozen or you know you, you continue in the metaverse <laughs> or something like that. It's 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 maiden transhumanist maiden forever. Um, and any other archetype, you know, mother, mother's kind of like an inconvenience, you know, we don't really talk about that because it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it might mess up your, uh, your career trajectory or, or whatever. Um, and prone, oh God, <laughs> that's, that's only a uh, negative. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think it's, there, there's a lot of value in that. Uh, I personally, I've, I've just seen it from the sidelines, but I can, I understand why, uh, why it might be a good, a good place to, uh, to research 
in case you are in the market for one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it has been interesting not to like totally mischaracterize like our relationship to it, but it has been interesting for her, I think also. Like for me, for me, it's like I kind of was like identifying with like, oh, I'm like this, you know, Western occulty, like wizard guy, like doing mushrooms and reading Plato and stuff. And then growing, not growing out of that, it's kind of like a value judgment, I guess, but like shifting over into having a more God-based worldview and what that means and all the little particulars of it. I mean, you can imagine I was doing all this art and all of a sudden I was like, wow, I'm about to really like U-turn this whole apparatus here. It's kind of like she's been going through the same thing. And I think that also, you know, has colored our relationship in a way. And I, I would imagine that a lot of women coming into the sphere you described where female style spirituality, I probably could come up with a better term for that, but I think people know what I mean is sort of maybe in the background unexpectedly, like, like you just said, you're on some mom Facebook group and it's like kind of like an astrology time sometimes. Right. Uh, I bet that's probably pretty interesting for people navigating that and figuring out what the whole situation is there and how they should vibe with it and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> a bit of an outsider because I'm kind of, I've, I've gained a lot of femininity, a lot of feminine aspects that I didn't have to my personality by becoming pregnant, becoming a mom, you know, things that you, you need when you're a mom. Uh, and it's been quite, quite interesting because I've, I've changed uh, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like just thinking about myself now, I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. I'm just, I'm just a protection mechanism for this new being. I'm, I do not have an, a, a personal essence. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. It's relaxing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really awesome, honestly, um, because it really, that, that for me really is like the, powerful manifestation of femininity. I mean, I guess that sounds obvious, but it's really like an infinitely deep, like spiritual thing. Like I often joke with my wife, like she'll be doing something with the baby and I'm like, wow, you know, you, you women, you guys, you guys are pretty crazy out there. That's nuts. But I'm kind of joking, but it actually is. It's for me, that's really like almost like an apotheosis, like a divinization of the feminine in this way that is like so spectacular that it's really interesting to even just be around like as a man, you know, like I'm holding the baby. I'm sure you're in this situation too. Like I'm holding the baby and he's crying and he's hungry and I'm just standing there as a man. And I'm like, wow, I literally can't do anything about this. I'm like the idiot. Just I literally, I can't do anything. Like I need the woman to, it's like not, I can't do anything. I'm just useless here. And things like that are, are really interesting. You know, obviously going through the whole like process of like, you know, gestating and birthing the child and everything. It's just interesting because yeah, that's definitely some aspect of real female power that, I mean, it's obvious in our circles, but uh, it's really interesting to be around and have seen it firsthand and to watch it develop day by day. It's, it's really something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's by far the most spiritual thing that has ever happened to me. Like, you know, my position on abortion before was eh, libertarian-ish. I was I was judgy about it. I didn't take it lightly. But now it is very different. Um, you know, growing a human is, is just a, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's like, how, how does this happen? Every day you're like, he's in there. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, I, I know exactly what you mean. And it's definitely, I mean, it's probably, I have to assume you're kind of saying it, it's the same for you, but it's definitely affected my relationship to like certain theological questions and spiritual questions. And I almost feel like if you stacked up like the books I've read, you can kind of see where the baby comes into play and how I'm starting to ask like different questions. And, uh, you know, of course, both of us, you know, we're going to now be stewarding the spiritual life of the child 
whether passively or actively, hopefully actively. And that's a whole other framework to play in. You know, it's, uh, it's a game changer, obviously, but uh, to experience it is something different. Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful. Um, and it's, it's, it's also interesting to, to look at one thing that I was, I was quite familiar with before I, I had my baby and, and now I have a, a totally different relationship to it. It's kind of the, the manosphere. I used to be kind of a, you know, forum lurkers, just, you know, taking in the information that people put out there because I'm, I've, I've got tough skin. I, I don't <laughs> mind seeing, you know, uh, controversial opinions and, and stuff, but, but now I feel like, I really do feel like the manosphere is down bad like in the last <laughs> the last few months, man. It's like, oh, it's to me, it feels like it kind of like the, you know, it's obviously kind of the the opposite polar end of, you know, rad femme thinking. It's 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 very liberal. It's very like what's in it for me. And now I'm I'm in my marriage and I have kind of this this spiritual um obligation it's not even obligation, a spiritual privilege to be part of this marriage. And it's a completely different um, set up. It's, it's not what's in it for me. I, it's not like I don't have expectations of my husband, but it's just, it's a different thing. And seeing this tit for tat game that they're playing and it's like, yes, the women that are in that relationship to you that, you know, um, have, um, transactional relationships. Cause that's what you're selling. You're selling, you know, how do, how do you win a transactional relationship with a woman? Um, they're gonna, they're gonna screw you over cause you're just playing tit for tat and at one point, someone, you know, is not going to reciprocate and, you know, it might be earlier, it might be later, you're playing for bigger stakes or lower stakes. You know, all of these combinations are possible, but it's just, it's just really, I don't know, it's, I, I, I cannot relate to it anymore. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah, it's almost like sometimes you see people giving relationship advice and you're like, okay, I'm not qualified to give relationship advice, but I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. And I really feel like that all the time. Um, there's really something about like the, I don't want to call it like the gender wars thing, but I think that if you're a married person in a relationship and you've gone down the road to some extent, it's almost like, I don't know if other married people feel this way, but I guess they must. It's like that can only happen if there's a certain level of like goodwill <laughs> and and assuming the best of the other person. And like you just said, like we're in this together that I almost feel like a lot of the gendery conversations online, it's almost like by starting in this place of polarization and I don't want to say hostility, but like negative assumptions, I guess you could say. For me, it's almost like the conversation is like dead on arrival because if you're starting the conversation mm-hmm. from like, you know, here's what men are doing wrong and this is why and this is their problem and stuff. Like even if, even if hypothetically all that stuff was is true, it's like you're not going to step into a situation where both people are meeting and shaking hands halfway, which is the only way any of this is going to happen. And same deal with both, both, you know, sides, let's say. So yeah, that's something I kind of picked up on. It's like, I don't even enter those conversations because it's almost like I'm rejecting the premise, like from the get go, which again, I think also has to do with like the spiritual situation that is for me, not even the background, but like the base layer of it. Yeah, I think being being a woman in right wing circles and in a minority, if people want dating advice from me, like where 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 are you guys? <laughs> where are you at? <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I tend to you know try try my hand at it, but it's it is really hard. And like you said, you know they're they're very unique situations. You know, I've, I've I met my my husband on a dating app, but I also kind of was in a in a very specific mindset. I was looking at a very specific type of person. 
Um, yeah, it's it's very hard. I was thinking about, you know, maybe making something that could give advice to people, but it's just so weird. I'm so, There's such a unique situation that I was in and he was in. And yeah, like you said, you know, you were in a immersed in the sea of women. So it was a bit easier. <laughs> well, yeah, there's definitely, you know, I really relate to that feeling a lot. There is the feeling of like, man, I can see there's like something missing here or like a missing piece. And for me, it's like when I'm talking to my wife in the car, sometimes like, I'll be like, man, like if I could just not, not bottle this, but just like what, what you just said is just like perfect. And like, but it's really hard to take it and give it. And then, and like the, and then you're in the position of like giving advice and that's a whole like weird thing. But uh, yeah, I really, I really know exactly what you're getting at for sure. Yeah, because I I feel like um you know this is a, the extreme example, but a lot of men are like oh you know you know they're divorce rate, but they they met a cocktail waitress named Tiffany and they they married her three times in three different incarnations <laughs> and uh, they're like you know oh you know women are demons and I'm like yeah and then I know a lot of women who you know married people who they probably should have known were a bit shifty, more on like the criminal type or, you know, more on like, um, you know, big ego type guys who ended up cheating on them or, you know, divorcing them when they got older. And um, yeah, you know, this is the, the kind of the reverse of that, the same, the same situation, you know, is you kind of attract what you put out there and it's, it's hard to, you know, it, it's, there's so many factors in, in here that it's very hard to give people advice, but um, yeah, you know, be careful what you wish for, I guess, you know, and, and what, what vibes you put out. I don't know if that's good advice. <laughs> See, that's why I'm not writing this dating advice book, you know, yeah. not, uh, not very practical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then you see people like in their relationships, you know, but it kind of like, it kind of again, like comes back to what I was talking about before, where it's almost like when I see people that are in relationships and they're, they often ask me for advice to be totally honest with you. I always feel like I'm kind of zooming out so far and seeing how it fits into their conception of like relationships in general, that it's almost like meta relationship advice, which is like interesting. But then is that like very practical, you know? So yeah, I will say that I honestly find it pretty endlessly fascinating, which I think is an interesting part of my shift in worldview over time. Um, When I was back on like the, let's say like, Buddhism, psychedelics, occult side, like I couldn't honestly have cared less about the inner workings of different people's lives. I mean, like I cared about them. I wasn't like a psychopath, but I really was just like, that's crazy. It's just like some random stuff that's happening to you, I guess. Like, okay, like I feel bad. Like I feel bad, but what am I going to do about it? But it's interesting because now that I am Christian and I can't help but feel like the two are related in some way, it's almost the opposite. Like the detail, not in a gossipy way, but like the details of how people's problems manifest and how it affects them spiritually and what it means for them and like the morality of it and what's good and what's bad. It it totally flipped. And now I find that super, super interesting. And I feel like the empathy I have for them is a lot more real. Not that I'm perfect. People have empathy for me too. I have problems too. But yeah, there's something really interesting about that too. Like I really do feel I'm more interested in it now in a way that kind of dovetails with my general view of the world that I can't exactly pin down, but they are related in some way. Yeah. This, this kind of comes back to, to your perspective on, on worldviews. I feel like because you've, you've internalized that um, uh, lens on the world and you can kind of understand that um, even if you disagree with someone uh, on the face of it, you can kind of understand where they're coming from on a, on a meta level. I mean, that sounds a bit pompous, but it's like, you can, you, if you know where someone's coming from, it's easier to empathize with them, uh, even if you don't agree on on almost anything. 
Yeah, that yeah, that's definitely true. There's also an aspect of it that I think has to do with like suffering and problems and you know, engaging with the world where if I had to boil it down, it's kind of like in Buddhism, suffering is like something bad to be avoided. In fact, like the whole point of it is to figure out how to not suffer anymore. Um, I mean, Buddha's life story is basically that he was in the palace, right? Some people know, some people probably don't, but he's basically a prince in a palace, didn't really know suffering existed, found out suffering existed, people die, people get sick, the world is like messed up. And then the rest of his spiritual journey was like, well, how can I avoid that? How can I not have that happen? And how can I disengage from that? But for me, that's part of like why I rejected it because I was like, well, it's actually kind of the opposite if you think about it, the suffering and the problems and how we work out these little minutia. That's not like a glitch in the matrix. That's like kind of what life is about. Sounds very like corny and obvious, but within Christianity, you know, when Jesus came to earth, he like did a lot of suffering in case people haven't heard. And I don't think that's incidental. I think there is something about the imperfections that obviously manifest in relationships in one way and how we engage with like these specific weird little aspects of life where now my perspective has shifted totally. And I'm almost like, Oh, that's actually kind of the point. And that's actually what part of like what we're here to do in a way. It's just interesting on the relationship note, you know, cause people often think of their relationship problems as like a glitch that like shouldn't be there to, you know, how can we smooth this out? How can we fix this like error in the code or something? But, um, for me, I really shifted and started seeing this as like an opportunity for like spiritual growth, which sounds like unfathomably cheesy, but but it really is true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of this stuff is kind of in a way aspirational. I understand exactly what you mean. It's like, you know, even when, when you're saying this, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're working towards internalizing these values. It's not like you're, I'm sure you haven't perfected uh, this, this perspective uh, and live it uh, to its fullest every day. At least, at least this is my experience because I agree completely with you on, on, on this. And that's kind of how I see my relationships as well as, you know, I've become infinitely more patient, infinitely more um, kind of gentle by internalizing this perspective, but it's hard. It's not, it doesn't come, it doesn't come naturally. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. And I think also part of where I'm at with it now is asking a lot more, I don't even want to call them like theological questions, but I feel like a lot of my spiritual research and what's directing it now is like asking myself questions about, you know, well, like, yeah, I'm married to my wife. What does that mean? Like to dumb it down, like, what does that mean for like the afterlife? When I go to heaven, like, are we still going to be married? Like, because if not, that's like kind of weird. Like I'm going to go to heaven and my wife's going to be there and she's going to be like, not my wife. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. What? Um, and you know, things like that. And like, even just, you know, I'm, I have this child now and like, I really feel like my relationship to him obviously is not incidental. It's like an intrinsic part of my personhood. And what does that mean for my spiritual life? And how does that fractal out and color the whole view of, you know, what it means to be human, why we're here and things like that. I feel like within a Christian context, it's a really, really, really interesting place to be because a lot of those answers on the folk level, I'm not saying in the big like 3,000 page books, but on the folk level, I think a lot of that is, is relatively fuzzy for people, uh, for sure. I mean, I think if you asked 10 to 15 Christian people, you know, what's heaven like? Like literally, what are you going to do there? A lot of them would say like, well, I'm going to be with my family. But is that actually part of mm-hmm. like the theology of Christianity? I mean, in some ways it is, but, you know, and I'm really working like in that space now. And it's super interesting. It's taking me to some really interesting places. And uh, yeah, it's been a huge part of like my spiritual development, thinking about that. And even things like, you know, I have this baby here, right? Where did his 
consciousness come from? I mean, did it literally spark when he was like in the womb or, you know, just so it, it really, the whole family situation explodes into all these questions that weren't important to me before, but now they're like the primary focus now for obvious reasons. Yeah. I, I think this is a, a good place to, to ask you the question of the show, um, which might be, you know, inspired from, from your recent studies or might be inspired from, from other events in your life. But, um, um, do you have a thinker, it could be a writer or an artist or someone who's been really, um, influential in, in your thinking that you think uh, deserves a bit more of an audience or is uh, is underrated, a subversive thinker, I usually ask. So is there anyone you could recommend to people? <sighs> um, that's the question of the show. That's awesome. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so a subversive thinker. Well, okay, mm-hmm. honestly, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna come so far out of left field right now because I know what my answer is and it's not going to be popular. I'm not endorsing this person, <laughs> but if you're asking me that question, also based on the what I was just saying, it's pretty hard for me not to say Joseph Smith, who is the guy who founded and started Mormonism, which is probably <laughs> so random for most people. But I think that, I have, I have no firm opinion on, you know, people have seen the South Park episode. They know about Mormonism. Like he found these gold plates. I have no opinion about that. I wasn't there. Maybe it's fake. Seems like it was probably not real, obviously. Right. But weird things happen. But for me, that's been the subversive thinker throwing curveballs into my life, <laughs> honestly, because I was doing a, so, you know, Christian history is like a huge thing that I'm interested in. And it's almost my, almost my primary interest now. And I realized I had a huge gap from, I would say like the pilgrims to Pentecostals from like 1600 ish to like, now there are people speaking in tongues in America. It was all kind of like a gray area for me. So I dove into that and I started looking at these 1800s American groups. And it's a really interesting time in case people don't know, because all of a sudden you have this explosion of different groups like Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons. And there's all these different groups that are really atypical. And I started going into them and, uh, I was hitting, you know, I hit the Seventh-day Adventist pretty hard and I was like, oh, okay, you know, this is interesting, but okay. But the thing that really tripped me up about Mormonism is that really unexpectedly, I started to take the view of it as, so totally neutrally, I'm not Mormon, in case people don't know that, um, but I started to view it as like, this is almost like a patch that this guy came up with that sort of like reorients Christianity around the family in this really weird way that made me have to go deeper into it and reflect back on what I think about all these things. And it was really, it's really been insane because it's kind of like what I just said. If you ask most Christian people, what are you going to, what, what's heaven going to be like? If I ask my mom that my mom's going to be here tonight, she's driving from another state. If I asked her, she's not Christian, but it doesn't matter. What are you going to do in heaven? She would say instantly, I'll be with my family. Well, that's not classical Christian theology. There's the, if you were going to find a religion that says that, it would be Mormonism, actually. And the way that it sort of takes the theology and like puts these patches on it and flips a few things up and down and makes it about like families and family life and having children, whether it's true or not, really has been upending my thinking about a lot of things. And I've been going into it for quite some time now. Um, I kind of have the luxury of 
I can really go really hard into a worldview or system of thinking and not adopt it. I think other people sometimes have an issue with that. But for me, I don't. I can read, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses stuff for three months out of pure interest and walk away and be like, all right, well, I'm not Jehovah's Witness. That was interesting. Um, so for me, that's really been the, the subvert, if that's the question, that's been the subversive thinker that I think has not only been, only upended my own sort of way of thinking about things, but I think that in general, if I was going to try and make like a somewhat like controversial statement, especially within like the Christian sphere, I really think like the way that Mormon theology is dismissed as like a total joke is not warranted. Whether that has nothing to do with whether it's true or not, but the way that it's like, oh yeah, like gold plates, like LOL, it really is like deeper than that in a way that I really was like totally blindsided by. And it's been super interesting. You know, like I have this kid and like just one example. So most people probably don't know unless they're Mormon, but the whole Joseph Smith system and ideas really goes in and it just adds these little things into the theological framework that kind of change everything. So like, for example, one example would be there's something called a pre-mortal existence. So for my kid, if you were Mormon, you would say he had a pre-mortal existence. He lived before this in like a kind of like spirit way and then chose to come to earth here. And then now I have this kid and, you know, he's Owen Jr., but he actually had like, I'm repeating myself, but a pre-mortal existence. But that's just really interesting because the ramifications of that and how that bleeds out into everything from like ethics to what we're doing here and why we're here get really, really, really interesting. Um, as a practical example, one of the main theological questions is that of theodicy, i.e. why bad things happen and uh, basically why bad things happen. Theodicy is if God real, why bad thing happen. And um, that really clears up a lot of things in a way if you choose to adopt that framework because then it flips the whole Christian system upside down because he chose to come here. So it's not like he's like cursed to wander and like, let's say, God forbid, he you know, breaks his leg or something later. It's not like something that was thrust upon him. He like chose to come here. And then there's this different situation in the afterlife. So I could I could honestly go on about it because it's it's been crazy. Um, but my answer would be neutrally with no examination of whether it's true or not. The subversive thinker, I mean, it would be Joseph Smith for sure. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've had a, um, another guest who was Mormon on the show, and I feel like there there is kind of a, a small contingent of people who really take Mormonism seriously and are um, promoting it, and are kind of because uh, it, it is still a religion of converts. It's it's, it's a hard one to um, to propagate through like her- hereditary uh, way, and it's 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 in trouble now in, in many ways, but. Um, yeah, that's it's it's definitely in terms of results and in terms of just the, the quality and the lifestyles and just the, the happiness that you see in the families that, that really go hard on Mormonism. Um, there's probably none none other none comparable to 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 how how they live. Yeah, my yeah, that's that's true. My gateway into it. So just just for the record, also is just funny in terms of being an internet person who is Christian but doesn't belong to any group because whenever I talk about one group. I get people who really don't like that group hitting me up, like angry about it. Like if I go into Catholic stuff, like I'll go in my DMs and I have all these Protestants like, oh, why are you promoting this? And if I talk about orthodoxy, I'll go to these Catholics who are like, oh my God, why are you promoting this? So it's just interesting. If you're going to DM me, I mean, don't bother. I'm not like promoting it. I'm just mentioning it. Um, But what really flipped my view on it and made me think of, like I said, Joseph Smith as a subversive thinker in that way um, was this essay someone sent me that was called, it's really more like a mini book. It's like a series of essays. It's called 
speculations of a theoretical Mormon. And it was this guy who's not Mormon, who I guess, I don't know when he wrote it, but now he would be probably classed as like somewhat reactionary. And it was just this series of things he wrote, kind of just like what I'm saying, like, hey, I'm a weird guy. I'm not Mormon, but I'm looking at this and here's my like thoughts on it. And it really kind of flipped my view, partially because of what you just said. He was saying like, you know, the whole rest of the Christian world looks at Mormonism like as a bunch of like dumb idiots who are a joke. But he was like, we're really not in a position to be casting stones from where we're sitting. Because if you look at them, like, I mean, their kids don't even, well, theoretically, like they don't drink, they don't do this stuff. And, you know, drinking is really tied to sexual promiscuity. So that's pretty interesting that, you know, you pull this rug out of this thing that allows people to have these like hyper casual sexual relationships with each other. Um, and the way, like I said, it's kind of reoriented around the family instead of having like a priestly cast, the father is like the leader of the family spiritually in a way more explicit way than other systems. And his conclusion about it was like, I, I don't think, I don't know if he ever became Mormon or if he just thought about it a lot, but he said, if this is true, you could kind of view it as like a reorganization of Christianity around the family unit prepping for this time period that we're in now where you have this unprecedented assault on the family. And it's kind of interesting because if you think back through history, I mean, there's this kind of like weird, I mean, everyone listening to this definitely knows this like weird kind of assault on like just normal family relationships and stuff that really wasn't present before a certain time period, let's say. And that was his, I think, neutral kind of like best case scenario view of it. It's kind of just, he was saying, it's kind of just interesting that you have this thing that comes along presenting itself as a theological patch. And it's basically entirely about reorganizing Christianity around the family unit. And for me, that's been really interesting because like I said, I'm not Mormon, but now I'm turning back towards the domains that I normally hang out in. And I'm like, okay, so what do you guys have to say about, you know, I'm married to my wife. Am I married to her forever? Like, let's go. Like I need, I need, I need some answers here, buddy. And I need them right now. Um, so it's been really interesting and it's, it's less so like tempting to join, no offense to any Mormons listening and more so like a catalyst for, uh, a lot of very interesting theological investigation that I've been going really hard on. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are on, on their way to a lot of, um, very interesting theological investigation. And I think this is a really good recommendation. We, we've had, I think Br Brigham Young was recommended. Oh, really? Before <laughs> by, by the Mormon guest. That's really funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is at Extra Dead JCB, if anyone is curious about that episode. But I think that's a good episode and also kind of goes a bit deeper into Mormonism and, and why and, nice. you know, how come. <laughs> um, uh, so I uh, want to thank you for coming on. This has been really, really fun. Um, I also want to direct people to the purchase of the book Channel One. I it's 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 a beautiful book. I don't have it in hardcover, uh, but I might purchase it because it, it's it's uh, it's awesome. And uh, I had my husband because I was reading it on my laptop, and my husband was like right next to me, and he was like giggling at the. I mean, giggling at the comics, he was kind of like entranced by what I was looking at. And I think, you know, he was kind of in on the joke and it was, uh, it was really good. Cool. So, um, yeah, for, for the entire family, it seems. <laughs> um, so please do do uh, buy that and follow uh, Owen at, I think, is it Owen Cyclops on? Yeah, Twitter? well, Twitter is my main hub. It's at Owen Broadcast. Confusingly, my name's Owen Cyclops at Owen Broadcast. I'm also on pretty much every other social media platform. I'm on Instagram. I'm probably one of the only people that has a Tumblr and a Gab, which is a really funny overlap, but I'm trying to get the images out there as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad you liked the book. And uh, thanks for having me on. This was really, really a good time. Awesome. Thank you so much.
If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 